let's let's throw out the scenario someone that they love doing deals with they've invested in a couple of their individual projects or syndications they now need to evaluate okay i like this guy should i go into his fund what are the questions that someone in that situation should be asking their favorite sponsor I'm always looking at it like what I just said. Do you think that you're actually going to see enough deals that look like this? I'm always, when I'm reading a PPM for like a blind pool fund, I'm looking for what's the mandate, right? With the investment mandate, meaning what can you do? What can't you do? And if it's super wide, then I'm going to be turned off. Like if they can just do whatever the hell they want to do, that's going to make me nervous. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Legacy Wealth Podcast, where we help accredited investors build their legacy through passive investing. Um, I'm your host, Pascal Wagner, and today we have on the show Lance Pedersen um, joining us from uh, Houston. So I'm going to give a little bit of background on Lance. Lance is the co-founder of Resonance Industrial Fund, which was formed to invest in Class B industrial properties throughout the U.S. heartland. Um, their objective is to provide high net worth individuals and small family offices with monthly double-digit cash flow, growth, and benefits of depreciation. Um, he began investing in private investments personally in 2022, has invested over $2 million uh, in over eight deals as an LP. Jump in and dive in here. What does the U.S. heartland mean? Like, uh, first well, question I, off the top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, as a, I'm from North Dakota originally, right? And so there's, there's sort of a, a debate, you know, where's the Midwest? You know, um, what constitutes the Midwest? So for us, I mean, I'm counting the heartland as sort of your Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, you know, Missouri, um, Michigan, Ohio, you know, sort of that. It's not the East Coast. It's not the West Coast, but it's not North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, you know, sort of you know, everything sort of Mississippi, the Mississippi River eastward, I guess. I guess it's the... So that's that's kind of that heartland. Got it. Is that is like when you say that? I mean, you've, you're obviously raising money, and and do do investors resonate with that, or is that just the term I'm unfamiliar with? I don't know. I, I'll say heartland. I'll say the Midwest. You know, it's uh, I like the heartland. It sounds more hearty and parochial. Uh, I mean, it's and I, I think that's why we like it. You know, it's just that it's it's sort of that those flyover states and the forgotten areas, and but yet when you look at the waterways and the railroads. In the interstate system, I mean, that's where all the goods are moving north to south, east to west, right? And so uh, owning industrial property in those areas, you know, is is, is a great place to own them. Uh, and so, yeah, it doesn't come up very often, but most I'm sure think the same thing you do, but they, I kind of got a little slide in my deck that shows the states I'm talking about, but there's a six, seven, eight state area there that we kind of have a fence around. Yeah. Look, before we got on the show, you talked uh, a little bit to me about uh, what you what you were doing uh, in terms of advising clients and NLPs when they're investing in the space. I also want to talk about your uh, the fund that you run and dive into the details of that. But let's let's kind of start uh, from the beginning there. You talk, talk to me and and to our audience about this career uh, of advising and, and getting into the alternative investment space. Yeah, so I, you know, I I started my first company. I was like 20 years old. It was a it was an IT company. In, in 2008, I got into real estate and on the hard money, you know, kind of private money lending side. So that's how I got into it. 
we pivoted that business from lending to just more of a private equity real estate firm. So an allocator of capital, you know, we raised money, my networks, and then allocated it to sponsors that were executing strategies that we liked and with operators that we thought were good. So I think they're, you know, we're really just sort of a super LP um, and uh, just have a little bit, you know, more zeros behind our checks to kind of, you know, throw behind us, but, you know, professional investors um, is part of that. We, we were investing with, you know, your, your smaller, you know, sponsors, these aren't huge institutional L or GPs. Right. And so the problem we ran into early on was just, notoriously really bad at back office reporting. Um, and we had a fund of funds and that was creating some major problems for us because we couldn't report, you know, our results without theirs. So we ended up starting led by myself with a professional services background, our own uh, fund administration firm to administer these vehicles on behalf of the guys that we invested with. So it gave us insight you know, an oversight into what they're doing and it ensured that it got done right and on time. And so we, we kind of had those two businesses between the pivot from lending to allocation. We kind of went from zero in both in 2011 to we ended up you know, with 350 million of equity under management in the private equity real estate firm by the time I had exited and left that firm and then $3.2 billion in assets under administration, all amongst, you know, these sort of what I'd call sub-institutional real estate GPs, a lot of debt funds, you know, multifamily guys, single family guys, self-storage guys, I mean, everything you can think of. Um, and a big part of my role was, was just, I, I did a lot of consulting with the guys to help them get their capital structures right as well. So when you're doing that every day and trying to help them form their offerings to ensure that they're aligned and they're marketable, you end up playing the role of the LP, right? Cause I would say, they'd say, well, I want it to be a 50-50 split or something or whatever they came up with. And I'm like, that's not going to fly. I mean, we wouldn't go for that. You know, that's not going to work. And so I spent most of my days kind of in the seat of the LP and not to mention running a fund administration firm. You know, it's just every day it's about, it's about fairness and equitability, right? Like ensuring that everything's being done above board and in a fair and equitable manner. Um, as you probably know, I mean, a lot of these documents, they're pretty vague, you know what I mean? And can be interpreted multiple ways. And so just trying to keep these guys from, you know, from not coloring outside the lines. So that, that's really in a, in a nutshell, that, that's kind of my background, you know, consultant, advisor, even keel middleman type. Yeah. So when you first started, uh, looking at deals in that space or, or maybe even just over the, your tenure there, well, how are you going about finding operators to work with and and how did you decide what asset classes or or strategy to pursue yeah great question so we really used as our go to market was the advisory uh practice so we knew a lot of guys that were sort of probably the most ideal candidates were the guys who were beginning to contemplate moving from single asset syndications to, you know, more blind pool funds. And so we use that as really our, our platform where we were saying, Hey, you want to start a fund? You know, we'd have webinars, whatever. And that attracted a lot of those kind of emerging uh, sponsors, operators, managers to ourselves, you know, so now, and once again, now we're being paid to conduct due diligence at the time we were charging guys like 50, 60 grand 
to, to walk them through the process. You know, that included all their fun docs, I mean, modeling. So I had to do a modeling for them, you know, uh, you know, pretty much everything soup to nuts to get them ready to actually go to market. But, um, so that was how we, you know, that's how we sort of source them in terms of like the strategies you like. The other interesting thing is when you're, when you're spending a lot of time with these guys like this and you're digging into not only them, but their strategies, you begin to pick up patterns of, of what intrigues you, you know? So I think, you know, for us, and this is like, you know, in 2013, 2014, I mean, we, we started you know, realizing like multifamily was very attractive to us. And so I'd say we were somewhat early compared vis-a-vis to many others, right. Of, of kind of finding a few operators that were doing uh, multifamily deals. So we did a lot of multifamily deals in you know, 2013 through 2018 of just the you know value add variety. A lot of that was also in, I'll call it the Midwest. Um, we, we, that was just our thesis. So we just, we tended to stay away from the coast just because of volatility. We're pretty risk averse guys. You know, we just wanted to go places where we just knew things weren't going to, you know, crash through the floor, you know, or it, it just, it wasn't, we wanted stuff that we felt like the operator could really add the value, you know, and go in and you get at the right price and execute your plan and, you know, get out and not be, not to succumb to some other wobble that we couldn't foresee. So you were very much on the, just helping set up the fund and, and you just kind of knew from an LP perspective, what would fly and what wouldn't, how, how, how would you make those comments? Well, like I said, because when, when you put yourself in the LP shoes, which we were, you know, I mean, it, you, you now that's where your interests lie. Right. And so when it comes to like control rights or lack thereof, or, you know, the economics, I mean, and once again, I mean, I think if anything, we were, because my, my partner in that, I mean, he had been running a, an open-ended uh, blind pool fund since like 2001 for the debt fund. In 2008, we, we ended up, you know, launching a, a, a new fund that was open-ended and had a debt component. And so in my superpower individually is probably just the ability to learn things that are very complicated and abstract very quickly. And so, you know, I just, it just made sense to me. Right. And so just understanding all of the securities laws, you know, just structure, like what would it be aligned versus what isn't, you know, just being able to put myself in the shoes of the different parties, like, well, Hey, if, you know, and, and just being a fund administrator too, like I said, it's just, you have, you got clients that are wanting to do things. And my job is to say, does this make sense? Is it fair? Right. Like you want to do this now. Who's, you know, because some of these things are a bit zero sum, right? Like there's winners and there's losers. So my job is like, well, how do we make it so that it's, it's more even both ways. So that's how I learned it. It was just using my brain and then saying like, well, if that were me, how, you know, when it comes to like dilution and a fund with multiple closes, you know, like, well, the value of the assets goes up. And if I came in early, but as investors, we use the same thing. So often we'd invest in other funds, you know, and we figured out like, well, we're better off waiting until the fund's less blind. They've acquired assets and, hey, we like your, you guys, but we're not going to invest until the final close because you just so happen to not have a clause in there. There is no anti-dilution mechanism. There's no subsequent commitment charge. There's nothing. I basically come in and write a big check and I elbow the rest of you out and I own, you know, 20% of the, of the fund on, you know, just by coming in at the end and I dilute everybody else. Um, I, always, I always said it to my clients. I'm like, no one really appreciates dilution until it happens to you. 
What are these? Uh, I mean, okay, this is this is fascinating. I mean, I I actually have had something similar happen. I invested in an ATM fund, um, and uh, similarly, I waited to invest until a good part of the fund was up and running and generating returns so that when I invested very quickly that I would be getting cash flow pretty much immediately instead of waiting for you know these things to be built placed and and um activated but when I made that investment um I didn't find the actual I didn't look for a clause like that I just kind of instinctually was like okay I want to wait until this fund is up and running and get in at the last moment what what are those clauses that uh, we should be looking for as investors to determine those types of things yeah i mean the, the, the big thing like those atm funds i'm familiar with my I actually helped the client set one up uh, a feeder into one of the other ones but yeah it's um the clause you're looking for right is that there's multiple closes and assets are being acquired over time in the very under, you know and the atms are a bit a bit different because they're, they're sort of a depreciating asset Right. And so, in fact, that's how those funds sort of work. I mean, ultimately, those things will have, you know, their useful life goes away, whereas in real estate, it's appreciating. Right. So that's the big the big thing is that, well, if these guys know what they're doing, they're going to acquire assets. And, you know, between inflation and just everything else, these assets should be worth more 30 days, 60 days, six months, a year, two years down the road than they were when they were acquired. So the clause you're looking for to answer the question, right, is that there's there's some sort of mechanism on subsequent closes after the initial close that something's going to happen and in, in, in typical typically in just like a, a regular institutional um, LP close ended fund it would be something called like a subsequent commitment charge where the, the the LPs that come in later basically have to pay like some sort of uh, percentage back to day one right and and when they when they do the close so they'll put a they'll, if the hundred thousand dollars are called in, they're going to send in one hundred and eight thousand dollars, and eight thousand dollars is going to then be distributed pro rata to the existing LPs, right? Based on their ownership percentage prior to the close occurring, and then paid out as a guaranteed payment, right? So they're basically being paid. Now, once again, it's the same thing. Is that usually it's like eight percent because many LPs coming in, if that subsequent commitment charge was eighteen percent or twenty four percent they would just be like, no way, like this is ridiculous. And they'd object. Well, the reality is, well, if your fund's going to return, if your fund projecting an 18 uh, IRR, then the subsequent commitment charge should really be probably 18, you know, not eight, you know? Right. So even then the dilution is occurring and there's other ways to handle it, like a revaluation of the assets and have a fluctuating net asset value. So the first investors pay a thousand, uh, you know, or you see other things, which I was I did a lot too, is just to have multiple classes of shares that you know could have a fluctuating, just predetermined you know uh, fluctuation. So there's many ways. That's why I call it like an anti-dilution mechanism. So you're just looking for something that's addressing that. To the degree that it's not there, then that means that you're going to be diluted. You know, right? So, so it's what it doesn't say. So it's. It's done either in a way by time or by closing or by maybe even capital invested. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah. And usually it's time. And then, you know, like the capital invested thing is you'd say like, okay, we're issuing class $3 million worth of class A shares. So the first 3 million that's brought in, will get 
you know, these shares. And once again, it could be a different split. Like you guys get an 80, you know, 80, 20 split above a 10 prep, you know, and then anyone who comes in from 3 million to 6 million gets. So there's lots of ways to, to, to handle it. Right. And that was part of my job is like, I was told all my clients when I consulted with the operators and the sponsors, right. was like, listen, my job is, is so that you can defend whatever we come up with. Right. If you're having a hard time explaining the subsequent commitment charge and the percentage, which most of them did, then I'm like, maybe we need to find a different way to get to the same place. Right. Because I'm not selling it. Like I could sell it all day long. Right. I understand it. But you're, I'm not going to be with you. You're going to have to sell it on your own. And if you confuse them, that could be a problem. Um, you know, so it just always came down to that. It's like, this is your product. This is something you've got to sell. You've got to be comfortable with. You've got to be able to defend it. No matter whatever it is, fees, the whole thing, you got to defend it. You had a very unique perspective of helping sponsors put together funds for, for you know, moving from syndications to funds. Uh, I imagine that for you, after having dealt with so many, it, it is probably easier to determine who is a sponsor that you would work with and invest with and who you wouldn't. What are those, what are those maybe subtle hints or, you know, trends that you learned over time? I mean, you you did this for so long. I, I have to imagine it, it must be easy to pick, pick out who you would invest with and who you wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a lot easier uh, than it would have been had I not done that. You know, I, I think the big one for me is just, it's, it comes down to the, ability to provide me with information that backs up your claims within a reasonable time. Um, and, you know, and this could disqualify many people who maybe are good operators, right? But, but I've always taken it as that seems to me to be of all the, all the companies we worked with all the years, when we sort of rested on that as sort of, and when we look at the winners, the ones who really perform well for us, that was evident from day one. And the ones who were, I'd call them swashbucklers or, you know, sort of like guys who are good at what they do, but it was, you know, it was a roller coaster going with them, right? Because of that, because just, they're just shooting from the hip and they know what they're doing and their instincts are right. And they can, they can shoot the gap and, you know what I mean? But that's risk. Um, right. So to me, like, that's a big one is just like, if if you're basically if I'm going to ask you to provide me with this information once again if you don't have some of it that's fine you know tell me that you don't and you know it, admit that it's just you're disorganized or more disorganized than you want to be but it's like don't try to talk me out of it or say like you know act like you're you know that, that what I'm asking you for and I can tell from talking with a lot of LPs they always say to me like you can ask for that stuff and I'm like why not you know what I mean like like why why not. I mean, I'm not saying that they're going to give it to you, but I'm saying they better give you a damn good reason why they're not going to. You know what I mean? Like, what, is, what does that say about them? Because for me, I have no problem. You want to run a background check on me? Do it. You want to do Like, I don't care. You want to see my, you want to see my pro forma on a deal-by-deal basis? I don't care. You can see it. I'll give you everything. Take it all. What do I right, have Right. Like, you should be 100% transparent. There should be, like, you're taking on millions of dollars in capital. You, like... You should be as trans. At least that's how I feel. You should be as transparent as you possibly can. Show bank statements, like the that's whole. That's exactly right. That's you. You nail it. So for me, I'm just like. So you're telling me, 
I'm asking for bank statements. It's a great example. I'm going, well, anyone worth their grain is like, who doesn't have their own bank statements and can't pre present them, right? Like, like all the stuff I'm asking for, you, the fact that you think that it's hard to get means that, that makes me nervous because it says, do you really know what you're doing? Right. Like, or are you a good manager of capital? That's exactly right. So it's just like, it, it's maybe I'm more detailed than you are. Maybe when it comes to analyzing it that way, but it just says a lot about you. So I'd feel more comfortable if you had that stuff. And once again, like I said, it's your right to say that you don't want to, but don't make excuses. Just say, you know what? I could get it for you right now if I wanted to. I just don't want to. You know, it's like I can go find five other guys to give me the money and I don't need your money. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you need to figure out. I think the key here is, is when you first get into investing, or at least this is how I felt, was if you don't have a lot of deal flow, you pretty you only have a couple deals to evaluate. And I think that's where this scarcity mindset comes in of, uh, can I really ask for that kind of information? But if you flip it over and you say, look, there are so many deals out there. I'm starting to build a deal database right now. Um, then you feel differently. If there's someone who is not willing to provide the information, then it's like, okay, I'm just going to go down the list. Do you have, do you have a, like a list of uh, sponsors in your mind of people who you really enjoy working with and, and, um, and, and those who you don't like, do you have like a not to invest list and, and why? I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, and I won't share their names, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, most certainly, you know, and I, I mean, and that was the hardest part about doing what I did was that it was disconcerting, right? Like you do it long enough to where you realize like, number of people that are probably worthy of your capital are in a very small minority, right? And that, per that percentage just gets smaller and smaller and smaller the longer you do it. Um, it you know, and especially, and, and you see this with any kind of, you know, industry or, you know, any run up in the financial stuff. It's just like when the, when the market's going up, right? Like everyone, everyone looks like a genius. And I think the, the big issue is that, especially all those who got in, you know, to the real estate game, you know, post 2010, um, it's just, they all think that it was the, what they were doing was why they found success. Right. And, and where to me, I'm going, even for us and our success, it's like, I'm not going to sit here and say we're geniuses because we weren't, but at least we can admit it. You know what I mean? Like in, in the second you convince yourself that you're God's gift to real estate or that you got it all figured out, that's what makes me nervous. You know what I mean? And so I think that it, it's just, yeah, it, it, the number of people, especially to navigate, you know, a, a down market and things like that. I just feel like it's, it's just a smaller percentage of operators that can do it because it's just, it's just different. So you talked about, um, you very much helped operators who are doing individual syndications. So like one-off projects and help them move over into this, this fund model. What were the biggest, I guess, hurdles that, you found these operators running against, right? Like I, I, I'm just thinking, Hey, as a prospective LP investor, you know, someone's putting, someone's done a bunch of you know, 50 deals, maybe solo one by one, and they're starting their first fund now. And I'm, I'm thinking about evaluating that as an investment. Like what risks should I go in? Like knowing uh, And, you know, from your perspective, you've seen operators struggle with making that transition. 
Well, I think the, the, the biggest thing they struggle with, right, is, is just the, the inherent complexity. That it's, just, it's just more complicated, right? And so, um, so you have that, just like getting their minds wrapped around it. Like, this is different than how we did it. And then the fact that they now have been given discretion, right, to make those, you know, those decisions, which, of course, is the very thing that they want. Um, but, but then that runs right up into fund management, right? So to the degree that they're able to convince investors to invest in their fund and overcome the complexity hurdles, right, meaning their ability to sell it, they then find themselves faced with that actual complexity, which is required then in fund management, right? Because now you're building a portfolio. And this is where I saw most of the guys, it's just, this is what they really struggle with. I'm like, okay, we, we went and did all this modeling. We had all these conversations, you know, and we put a, we put a buy box or an investment mandate around what you could or you know, what you can and you can't do. And now it's your job to build a portfolio that gets us to where you said you were going. Right. That means that if you decide to, to do a deal, if you, if you sold this as and we structured it as an income and a growth fund, right, that's going to generate an 8% preferred return. That means that you can't go and do a bunch of deals that are deep, deep value add that'll have no cash flow. Like you're going to have to, like, you're going to have to blend some of these. You're going to have to find some of these lighter value add deals with sooner cash flow. Right. That's your responsibility. That's called fund management. That's how you're getting paid that one and a half or two percent fee is to do that. Right. Is to create this financial product and actualize it. And that's where many of them, it's just like I could say that till I'm blue in the face. Right. But until they experience it, um, then they realize, like, oh my gosh, this is what you meant. I didn't understand it. Like, what do I do? You know, because I'm going, what did you do? Like, you, you bought a bunch of deals like that. What did you expect? And everyone's upset with you. And I'm like, what part of this didn't you understand going into it? So, so let me, let me recap. So it's, it's essentially when you're, when an operator is doing one-off deals, it's easy to underwrite what that one deal will do. Uh, what kind of prefs there should be, what the splits should be exactly how they have that needs to perform. That's easy to do when you have one deal in front of you. What's different about the fund model is now you're relying on that operator's know-how to be able to somewhat predict with what kinds of properties are going to come their way and roughly how many, you know, it's not just like, oh, I have, I look at a hundred deals and I go find my one deal. It's like, no, I look at a hundred deals and I need to have one lighter value and one deep value. And I need to, I need to understand that concept going in and know that I'm looking for, like, there might be 10 deals I would have done that are deep, you know, renovation, but I, I have to say no, because uh, the way I've decided to structure the fund of, of what I sold to our investors. Yes. And that seems to be the stretch. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Which seems sounds silly when you say it out loud, but it's, you know, and a good example is like this industrial fund, this class B industrial fund I'm raising for, right? So it, it's, you know, I wanted it to be monthly income, right? With, but with good upside. So I wanted, I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. And, and that was driven because we were seeing deals like that, but we knew going into it. So it's a $15 million raise. We're like, we might only see five of these deals a year. 
right? So that means, but it shrinks the whole universe, right? So you get deals on your desk, you know, two, three, four, five, six times a week, right? But when it comes in, it's like, well, here's an eight cap deal. Uh, we think we can get financing at six, you know, we're immediately like, it doesn't work, right? Like this deal won't work or, or the, these leases don't expire for 10 years or whatever it is, you know? So it's, it, what happens is when you structure the fund, then you basically are disqualifying a whole set of deals, which of course they were paying me to help them through. I asked them the questions, they made the decisions. Right. right? And then they violate them. Whereas for me, I architect my own fund and now I'm basically saying this doesn't fit. So when I go find a deal, it's a really strong cash flow providing deal that I'm like, well, this is a great deal. It's a five-year deal. And this thing's going to generate and kick off day one, 11% cash flow. It's a, it's a sale lease back, right? So I'm like, this is a perfect asset. $10 million, $11 million deal. Seed the fund day one. Now we've got a five-year deal that's going to, you know, that's going to anchor me with good cash flow in my target range, right? And then you do another deal. And now you might be able to, it, it just, it, it, as you go along, you might be able to do deals that are a little lighter on the cash flow because you've got enough of it coming from another deal, right? Let's let's throw out this scenario. Uh, I'm sure there are listeners out there that have uh, someone that they love doing deals with, uh, and they've invested in a couple of their individual projects or syndications. And uh, like it seems, everyone and their mother is starting to raise a fund. Uh, you know, they now need to evaluate. Okay, I I like this guy. Should I go into his fund? What are the questions? that um, someone in that situation should be asking their favorite sponsor? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the first thing I would start with is, is just, it may, maybe it's obvious or not, but I mean, I'm always looking at it like what I just said. Do you think that you're actually going to see enough deals that look like this, right? So I'm always, when I'm reading a PPM for like a blind pool fund, I'm looking for what's the mandate, right? With the investment mandate, meaning what can you do? What can't you do? How, the buy box. And if it's super wide, then I'm going to be turned off. Like if they can just do whatever the hell they want to do, that's going to make me nervous. Right. But if it's, you know, the more narrow it is, then I'm going to be coming down. Like, can you actually find enough of this stuff? Like, is there enough of stuff that looks like this? That does that make sense? So those are questions you want to understand is like, like how many, how many of those things have you seen in the last year? You got it. That's exactly right. Like what, what is your deal flow on this kind of stuff? Um, you know, what does it look like? Are you seeing stuff like this for real? I mean, so you could actually do enough of this stuff for it to make sense. Um, if you were able, to, if, if capital wasn't a constraint. So those are the things that I want to understand. And then, and I, once again, I'm going to probably spend more time on just like, okay, what does your back office operation, like who's behind this thing? So like you have a, if you engage a fund administration firm, you know, somebody who does this for a living, I mean, and I would want that because that, I want that to be the answer, right? And if they're like, oh no, Sally, you know, Sally's doing it. Uh, and we've known her forever and she's great. You know, and I'm thinking to myself, you're a real estate guy, your ability to assess whether someone's a great accountant. I'm sorry. I'm just probably not going to accept that. Um, once again, but this is from my own personal experience. Right. So yeah. You coming from that fund world. Sally was, yeah, I'm going every, everyone who said their Sally was great. I basically within an hour figured out that they weren't so great. Um, so, you know, it's just making sure that do you actually have it doesn't have to be your own employees, but I'm just so, like, do you so let's, do you let's dig into that. Like, so you came, you came from that world where you were literally in the fund admin world. So, so what would be like an example of, of, you know, something that Sally did or didn't do that, uh, are just, um, brass tacks 
you know, yeah. standard in your world? So, I mean, I think that, you know, and this is the thing I learned in my first business, you know, which was IT services, whatever, but like, you know, we were on cash accounting and then I just, you know, it's like revenues going up and down like a toilet seat. You can't figure out if you're profitable, you know, and that was like one of my first big problems to solve was like, what the hell's going on here? And then, you know, my CPA, whatever, is like, it's called accrual accounting, you know, so, you know, realizing that there's just a different way to keep your books, right? So that everything lines up. So, I mean, for me, that's what I go after right away is like, does this person on the, does this accountant or controller or bookkeeper, whoever they are, it's like, do they actually understand accrual accounting? Do they understand that like, we're trying to keep all the right expenses in the right month and not doubled up? And, you know, I mean, once again, to me, it seems basic. But it's just things like that. Do they have someone that can that can answer those questions? I don't care what what you call them, bookkeeper, controller, CFO. It's just who's who there that actually has real competence, isn't just a glorified bookkeeper, right? And that understands or how you need the property level financials. Because I'm sure you've seen it as well, like in multifamily. A lot of these, they're property managers who are responsible to pre- prepare the financials. They're they're busy leasing, like that's their competence, right? And so to me, it's just. The accounting and the bookkeeping piece is usually the Achilles heel. And it's only exacerbated when you go into a fund model, right? Because now you've got individual properties. And if you can't figure out how to close the books on an individual property in 30 days, then how are you going to be able to close the individual books on 12 or 15 or 20 properties that all have to roll up, right? And that's where some of the opaqueness is in these funds, right? Is the fact that, you know, these assets are held on at book on the balance sheet. Right. So you only know how their operating performance is. You don't, you know, you don't necessarily know, you know, and we've seen some of this stuff of late, right? Like these big, these big syndicators and stuff. Like you, you just can't tell as the LP whether or not this stuff is really performing necessarily. Right. And so it's just that's the stuff that drives me crazy is that having I mean, to, I want to see that you can actually provide me with that kind of information, the operational metrics at the property level the financial data that can roll up to the fund, you know, so that if you know what you're looking at, you can actually figure it out. Cause some of this stuff gets really wonky out of clients come to me who try to administer their own fund. And it's just like looking at the balance sheet. I'm just like, dude, this is terrifying. Like, but you know, they don't even know it. They, they, they can't even see it. And I'm looking at it like, this is this balance. sheet's not telling the story that you wanted to tell. Do you not realize that? Right. You look like an amateur. Yeah. yeah. Great. She knows what she's doing. I'm like, no, she doesn't. What was your, you eventually then transitioned into industrial real estate and that's where your focus is now. Why did that transition happen? And t- tell me a bit more about like why that niche. Yeah. So, I mean, once again, going back to like the advising, like I spent probably 50, 60% of my time client facing the other 40% running the, the company. But, you know, so once again, having the ability to meet with all these guys doing all these different strategies. Um, and like I told you, there's a very small percentage that I'm like, these guys are winners. And, and once again, and we invested in many of those ourselves, you know, through the other side of the business. But, um, I always, the guys that I, that has clients that were doing industrial, I was always fascinated by it. You know, one, because to me, it just seemed really simple. I'm like, this is great. Like, this is simpler than any of this other stuff. Right. Um, And it just makes sense to me. So I've always had an affinity for that. And I always, I always like mobile home parks as well, but I, 
I knew that it was much more labor intensive. And it's probably because I spent much of my childhood like in a mobile park. So I just had a soft spot for it. Um, but so, so that was, you know, kind of the, the, the driver for industrial. But once again, going back to the quality of the operators, this, my partners are a father and son, uh, tandem, uh, Andy and Mac Dumkey and they're from Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And so they were one of my clients. They were buying, uh, low income, uh, or affordable housing, section 42 housing after the first 15 year Lura expires. Cause he, uh, Andy, the father did a bunch of development himself and they realized like, let's buy the stuff when the, when the first 15 year expires, hold it for another 15. They hired me to help them put together a fund for that. So, you know, I spent quite a bit of time with them. I'm like, and of course I'm from North Dakota, they're from Wisconsin. We hit it off. And this was, you know, three or four years ago. So when I ended up leaving both of these companies, I had the same partners in both of the fund admin company and we pivoted to a tech platform, you know, with a marketplace and investor portal and all this stuff. Um, and a falling out. I was a partner with these guys for 14 years. We just didn't see eye to eye on how to capitalize the firm. So I left. Um, and a bunch of my former clients started calling me like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, Hey, you want to help us out? So Andy and Mac, you know, came back and said, Hey, can you help us? We're trying to raise institutional money for this light tech housing deal. You know, realizing it's brain damage, you know, to do this, you know, for high net worth investors. I'm like, yeah, I'll help you out. And then they started telling me about their industrial deals that they were doing. And I'm like, guys, how many of these deals are you seeing? Once again, and they've and Andy, the father's been you know pretty successful over the last 25 years. So they were just doing deals. He kind of shifted from retail and was divesting and started doing these class B industrial deals, more of them. I'm like, these are freaking home runs, guys. So I'm like, why, why don't we take some outside capital? They're like, I'm like, how many of these deals are you turning down? They're like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe one every two or three weeks or something. I'm like, I'm like, let's just put a fund around this. And, you know, cause they're just Oshucks, Wisconsin guys. So they just have never really liked interfacing with, you know, the investor side. I'm like, listen, you guys do your thing. You know, I'll do my thing. I think we make a great team. They agreed. And that's, so it was like the love of industrial to begin with the fact that they were doing them. Um, kind of had the tiger by the tail. I'm like, this is great. And frankly, after just being on the other side of the table all the years, like I've just, I've had a desire to move the opera operator side of the table. It's kind of like you've, you've been there, done that. And you, it's like, I want to get my hands dirty. Um, totally. And I've enjoyed it. And I, I, I do, I like it a lot. It's, it's fun being on the operator side and I kind of live vicariously through all those guys, all those years, but it's just the, you know, I, I knew why they loved it. And I was called deal junkies. I'm like, you guys are just deal junkies. But I'm like, I'm a deal junkie too. Like, I, yeah. I love that. It's so fun. Same. Same. So w when you talk about like slam dunk deals, like walk me through the strategy of the fun. Like where, you know, so yeah. Heartland uh, and give us, give us the like buy box. Yeah. So for us, you know, like, so the buy box is really at five to 20 million uh, purchase price, you know, too, too big for the small guys and probably too small for the big guys. Um, you know, and we're looking for, so, so big know, guys, meaning like the black rocks, the black rocks and even larger, you know, just the guys who, if it's under 20 million, it's just not worth it. You know, and, and, and so, small guys, we're talking like, you know, just, people that do development, but they just don't have a team around them or a dentist or a, you know, a small business owner, you know, these guys who just buy stuff on their own, like the guys who do all like a lot of the triple net stuff, you know, it's just, they might go up five, 6 million, but they're not gonna, they're not gonna touch, you know, this kind of stuff. So just kind of weed out the competition. And then, 
And then for us, it's really looking, we're looking for, you know, hundred thousand to, you know, half a million square feet, um, you know, high quality construction, class B stuff. So obviously it's probably been built in the last, you know, 20, 20 to 30 years. Right. So it's not the newer stuff, but. So know. in, so in uh multifamily, you know, there's this class A through D you know, class A is luxury, you know, highest paying, you're paying two, three, four thousand $4,000 a month in rent. And, you know, C is like a neighborhood being regentrified. In the world of industrial, how do you describe each class? Yeah, same thing. So class A is the newer product that's closer to large urban areas, right? So it's just newer stuff, more of the technology baked into it. Um all the Amazon distribution centers and all the stuff you read, Prologis, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, and it'd be stuff that you drive by on the freeways in and around Houston, right? Whereas interspersed in there, you're going to find class B buildings and, and they might be in great areas too, but they're just, um, they're just uh, older, right? And so that'd be kind of class B or it might just be, it could be class B. It's a really nice building. Uh, not kind of class A amenities, you know, grade, but it's, it might be in a secondary market, you know, or even a tertiary market. And then it's the same exact thing. And then class C, and a big thing is when you kind of go down classes, it's ceiling height. That's the uh, ceiling clearance is the big one. And the number of like uh, doors, you know, loading doors, things like that. Those kinds so, of amenities. So, so talk to me. We're talking like Class A has at least twenty foot ceilings and you know, 30, yeah, ten like doors. 32, per- Thirty-two plus, you know, and so yeah, and so Class B would be you know the same. You're looking for, and it could vary throughout the, the facility, right, depending upon the areas. But yeah, off the loading docks, you're looking at twenty-six plus, you know, feet of, of clearance up to you know and, and up. Um, but in some of the older ones, you know, we'll call it class C or class D, they might be 20, you know, 20 foot heights. So it just doesn't work right for racking and for warehousing. So it's like any of this stuff, it's just now your number of potential tenant types is reduced and increases risk. So, you know, some of the facilities we look for, we like, you know, cold storage, you know, as, as this for some of the space, you know, things like that. Um, those are amenities that, you know, there's just not enough of. And, that's, Cold that's storage, like you mean air conditioned like or like freezers, freezer space, you know, just yeah, freezer space. And that's a big part of it, right? And it's just hard to find. Like, where do you store the stuff? If it's just a dry, you know, dry storage, you know, it's just, yeah, it's all climate controlled, you know, things like that. But the big things when you're evaluating and assessing the building itself, right, is the condition of the roof is the biggest. So, because a roof on an industrial building, you know, it could be one to three, four, $5 million. I mean, it could, it could, it's a deal killer, right? Um, you know, in the, the parking lot, stuff like that, uh, and the, the building construction. But so what I'm hearing here is, so you're going in and you're looking for class B. So, uh, uh, warehouses or yeah, I guess industrial facilities that have like high ceilings, 32 plus, uh, be, uh the higher the ceiling, the better, uh, a little bit older. Um, maybe in primary, maybe uh, in secondary markets. And then you're looking for things that either, you know, you get a, a cutback uh, or um, I forget what that term is called, where uh, you get a credit for the roof if it needs repair um, or that the, just the roof is in good condition. And, and then you're looking for what kinds of, of tenants. So, so you go in and you, 
you do a value add component, you just release like value, yeah. So we we would consider value add as retenanting, right? So we're we're looking for buildings that have expiring leases that are well below market, you know, that are at least twenty percent below market, expiring twelve to twenty four months from the date that we acquire it, you know, is is sort of what we're looking for. Um you know, so I mean, those are, those are the big things. I mean, the other thing too is just it's we, we want it to be close to you know interstate highways, things like that. If if it's in a secondary tertiary market, just once again, it's just the number of people that are going to want to lease that building. But it's most of our value add is all about retenanting or renewing you know leases, um, and you know that's how you add the value. So so most people that I know uh, and they exactly fall into this category that you're talking about, like the the dentists, physicians, you know, people that are buying these smaller triple net leases, and they typically like to buy them with long, long term leases in place, because those people yeah. don't have the expertise to, you know, go figure out and how to refill those tenants. Um, so, you know, flag here, there's risk uh, with having mm -hmm. these um, leases expire in the next 12 to 24 months. Walk us through the process of uh, you've clearly identified an expertise here in, in how you go find people or why you're comfortable with that yeah. risk. Maybe walk us through why, yeah. like the process that you use to make you comfortable. Yeah. And you, and you nailed it. And a lot of times, you know, the current owner is probably owned it for 15 years and they're, they're afraid that the, that this deep recessions upon us and that their tenants going to, leave them. And so they're basically like, let me get out before it gets too bad. Well, that's, we like that. We want them thinking that way because then we get it on sale. Um, you know, so you're, but yeah, I mean, the reason why is because we have such strong relationships within our target markets in the broker community. So our broker is, is the number one industrial broker in the country. So he does more business than any other industrial broker, um, in any of the other areas and his team, I mean, this guy's got us like, um, private plane. I mean, he, in, in, in the Midwest, once again, you kind of have to, he's got to get to these different places or whatever, but nonetheless, he's, he's a successful dude and, and he's built a team of guys that are sharks. Um, and so because, you know, my partners have done so much business with them over the years, you know, you, they like them, you know, and I think that's just it, like not to be overlooked in this business, it's a relationship business. And so, um, it, you know, I, I think that that's really that's really the key for us is just those relationships are in place. And when it comes to tenant types, especially the facilities that we target, I mean, these we're usually targeting more national, you know, credit type tenants. You know, these, these aren't, this isn't Joe's fencing company, you know, like these are, we're looking at larger, you know, more, you know, maybe not institutional credit quality, but I mean, like, you know, like one of the buildings we bought in Ohio, I mean, it's precision cast parts owned by Berkshire Hathaway you know, was the, was the tenant, you know, so tenant, you know, like, like the roof matters to the quality of the building. Um, and it's very important. The, the tenant is the most important thing, right? Because if it is Joe's fencing, Hey, I love Joe's fencing. I want to see him be successful. Right. But let's face it. If Joe's fencing is the tenant, even if it's a 10 year lease, that's just riskier. Right. right. So I'm going to pay less for that building. So our whole thing is like, how can we find a building? And we do this at times we tie up a property, try to get our DD period, you know, to be as long as it can be. And then we go and hunt for tenants or either we have them in tow and have leases signed 
you know, it could be a vacant or partially vacant building and we already have leases. And so, you know, so we're basically forcing appreciation before we ever even close, like the deal we're doing, the 300,000 square foot building in Madison, Wisconsin. That's what we've done. So, so walk me through, you, you get this broker, this, that you, you build this relationship with, he calls you, he says, Hey man, here's this property that's, that's coming on the market. Maybe he sends you an email with, with the details. And then you turn around and you start calling. Um, like you have a, a list of maybe a hundred like national players yeah, he, that you're. Yeah. I mean like, yeah, if it might be people we know, or, you know, he, like in this case, he's like, so here I've got the building and I have a tenant. I think, in fact, I've got maybe three tenants who want this thing. Right. So it's basically, he's bringing all, you know, he's bringing most of the ingredients to the table. Then it's just a matter of us, you know, negotiating with them. Right? So why, and, why doesn't someone like that take the deals, uh, till deals themselves? Well, some of the deals he invests with us or whatever, but you know, I think that's just it with brokers. It's just, they know, you know, it's like, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Right. Like it's just, he makes their, his bro- commission. Bro- brokers make good money. I mean, if you're good, you make good money. I mean, you're making 3% on the buy. You're making 5% of the lease commissions. Let's once again, like these guys are raking it in if you're good. Yeah. So, you know, taking away buildings when you could, you know, turn them over and make that money. It's just different. Right. It's not to say that one day this guy couldn't go on his own and, you know, source his deals. And obviously that's a risk to us. Um, you know, but that's, it's like anything. It's just, you go find it. I mean, and I think that's just, it's all this stuff. All, every, everything in this commercial real estate game, it's all about broker relationships. Like you need to know who the boots on the ground. I mean, these are the people that are in the ears of people. And yes, you can develop an acquisition strategy. That's an off market strategy to augment. You know what I mean? If, if you need to, to basically go and target owners, like a lot of mobile home park guys do. I know multifamily guys do that. We could do that as well. Um, you know, and we may at some point, you know, but when you've got guys that are just like handing you deals, I mean, they're, they're, they're ahead of us. And in, in many cases, the brokers are, they just, they're just more established and it's going to be hard for you to, it'll take time for you to sort of get more embedded than they are. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Lance, this was awesome. I, uh, I super appreciate you coming on and sharing uh, everything with us. That was awesome. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Yeah, any anytime. Happy to happy to join you. In. Where where can people go find you? Yes, I mean LinkedIn is probably the best. So just Lance Peterson. It's P E D E R S O N on LinkedIn. Feel free to connect with me there, and you know we can go from there. And we've got a website. It's resonance-cg.com. But I think LinkedIn's the best place. If you if you're listening to this, and happy to talk with anybody and answer questions. You know, value before you expect value in return. But um, that's just that's how I operate. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lance. And uh, see you all on the next show.